Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. So, what's the term blasphemy mean? Blasphemy. I know that's a term that maybe isn't used all the time, but if we look at it, uh, uh, a simple definition is maybe insulting uh, a greater condition, um, insulting the truth, insulting whatever. The... If if you take a step back and look what's happening in the collective, there's a real strong push. People are are fighting for a singular narrative. There's a lot of pressure for everyone to get um, um, under a, a singular narrative. Let's all do this. Let's all do that. And... From my perspective, I think that's blasphemy to nature. Nature. You know when you're on social media and you click on something and all of a sudden you see more and more of it? Um, Maybe uh, there's whatever topic shows up and the more you click on it, the more it brings you um, more examples of that. Well, I suggest you do this. When you're on social media, look at pictures of the uniqueness of nature. Nature expressing itself in a unique way. Now, I've been doing this for at least a decade. And maybe it's a sea urchin with an orange crust and a fluorescent green head and little tentacles coming out the back or it's a it's a bug that looks like a stick and you couldn't see it um, on a tree if you had to or it's uh in um and what i'm getting at is nature's been in its own rodeo now for like a billion years or probably several billion billion years and it's it seems like it's just beginning. <laughs> it seems hilarious that nature's just beginning to express itself because it perpetually creates a new perspective, a new dynamic. Blasphemy to nature is some kind of a template. The human dynamic is only normal in humanville. The human template, the human genome, is only, quote, normal, unquote, in humanville. You could take humans off the planet, and nature would do just fine for eternity. Nature knows what it's doing. In fact, our I suggest our human ego is woefully 
uh, ill-equipped to advise nature in any way, shape, or form. I'll give you an example. Um, the, the reason I bring this up tonight is um, how our how our narratives are collapsing. And and tonight I'm I'm very excited about tonight's episode. The topic tonight is the era of brilliant homeopathic mental hospitals. And our guest tonight is Jerry Cantor. We're going to bring Jerry on in just a minute. But I've worked in TV now over 40 years, and when you work in TV, (laughs) when you're in a building that's putting out TV 24-7 for decades, you see some stuff over time. You see some stuff. There was a, a, a show that... It was it was investigating um, exotic cures. The it was a documentary about like um, third world countries or um, villages in the Amazon or, in, in other words, it left the traditional Western narrative and it went looking for unique cures to problems. And there was one particular medicine man in this in this small village in the middle of flipping nowhere and the locals would would bring him all sorts of disease, all manner of disease. And there was one particular case where the the journalist was interviewing all the patients as they were lining up to see the medicine man and they came across a patient and I'm sorry but I don't remember the particular ailment but the journalist said oh really uh, the western world has no cure for that we don't have a cure for that ailment it was a some kind of a psychological um, um, ailment and and so the the journalist every time this patient had come back it would follow it and what the medicine man did was take these big leaves from a plant and fold them in half lengthwise and he'd put them up to the patient's forehead and all around the head and then he'd wrap it with twine and it looks like he's making a crown but what he's making is a bowl using these leaves and once he had enough leaves all the way around this person's head, he made up a cocktail of, it, it looked like syrup, and he poured it on the man's head. And I'm like, what, what is going on? I mean, so he'd pour this fluid on top of this man's head, and he'd let it sit there. And then the patient came back and did this a couple more times, and the, and the person was cured. So where the hell is that? Where did that go in that um, if we look at our, our narrative today, if we look at the collective consciousness of humanity today, we're pigeonholing so many things that work just fine. 
and and we're trying to substitute that with singular narratives. All right, enough about that. I want to get to the show because Jerry has written a wonderful book. The t- the topic of the show tonight is actually the subtitle of the book. The book is called Sane Sane Asylums. Sane Asylums. The success of homeopathy before psychiatry lost its mind. You can see why I used that example in the just a moment ago. Let's get to it. Presenting the official homeopathic blueprint for treating mental disorders, Jerry explores Talit's methods, including nutrition and sophisticated side effect-free homeopathic prescriptions, and how Middletown-inspired, similarly enlightened, sane asylums across the country. He reveals how homeopathy was pushed aside by pharmaceuticals. There's that single narrative, pharmaceuticals, which is which often caused more harm than good. Hmm, I'll try to act surprised. As well as how the current critical attitude a current critical attitude in the collective towards homeopathy has distorted the historical record. There's blasphemy when we're collapsing the many different ways that nature has to heal itself. It's blasphemy to pigeonhole the different ways we can accommodate what we seek. Jerry shows how we can improve the care and treatment of the mentally ill and stop the exponential growth of terminal mental disorder diagnostics that are rampant today. The the mental strategy today is take a pill, take Xylene 12, and and you won't feel a thing. I'm I'm looking forward to this episode. Let's get to it. Join me in welcoming Jerry to the show. Jerry, it's nice to finally have you on the show. Thank you very much, Les. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I like to uh I like to make sure we use language effectively. And so, um can we start off with uh a, a concise a description of what homeopathic medicine is all about? Sure, that's a good place to start. So the word, so homeo, we can break it down. Homeo means same as, and apathy uh, relates to sickness. Same to treat sickness. This is the law of similars in homeopathy, using like to cure like. Um, so client comes into my office, doesn't matter what, he or she has going on, but uh, very likely going to be a hodgepodge of mental and emotional problems, maybe anxiety, depression, but also physical symptoms um, that could affect the uh, digestion, metabolism, respiration, all kinds of things. And homeopaths are not uh, specialists. We, we take the whole kit and caboodle of the person, and we have to find a, a remedy uh, which connects all the dots. With that person and where the mental and the emotional 
features, the characteristics, and we can talk a lot about what that is. You know, those are the driving, the driving, um, the, the driving clue. Um, so what is a remedy? A remedy is something very, very dilute. Hardly any of the, of the material that is there. Uh, the material having been come from uh, originally a plant or a mineral or chemical compound, could even be an existing medicine or the venom of a snake or, or an ant, uh, that in a gross amount would cause that exact that complex of symptoms, mental, emotional, and physical, that we see in the person. So someone's in my office and I say to myself, huh, it's as if this person was uh, poisoned by a rattlesnake venom, or it's as if this person was, uh, you know, um, bitten by uh, a cockroach or something like that. Because in sure. homeopathy, we have researched very extensively what that substance does on mental, emotional, and physical levels. So giving that same substance full strength would be a terrible idea, like pouring gasoline on a fire and right. expecting it to go out. But if you dilute it many, many, many times and energize it, and I have done my job properly and, and accurately, then the very concise prescription of that substance is, should fit like a glove. And when the person takes that, that remedy, that's what it's called, homeopathic remedy, it's like a permission slip to the subconscious. The subconscious is what homeopaths refer to as the vital force. It releases a reaction that actually wants to happen, but has not happened in that person. So it's from All within. Right. And a person gets better in consequence of that. A single accurate prescription, this is mind-blowing, even though it has hardly anything in it, can affect that person over several weeks, if not months, while they're working that issue out. And by the time they return to the office, if the prescription has been accurate, they are considerably better. So you're, you're taking uh, a substance like rattlesnake venom or scorpion, whatever, that, that the effects of that would mimic the symptoms the patient's talking about. And then you take an extremely small amount of that and, and issue it as a dose of medicine. I, I'm, I'm trying to speak back to you what you just said. And, and so when you give the body the um, minute amount of, of what it, uh, like snake poison that would have the same effect as the patient is already reporting, the, that small effect affects the vital force, which you call the subconscious. Well, uh, you relate to the subconscious and that small amount permission slip i don't want to put words in your mouth that yeah, gives yeah. The... I, I think of it as a permission slip to the subconscious yeah the, sub, the vital force is the subconscious with one additional feature well with a very significant additional feature we usually think of the subconscious as being completely psychological the vital force which has all the features of the subconscious but also physical attributes in other words there's no distinction between the mind and the body um this the, if that particular substance causes and by the way, I should say that what, what I was describing is homeopathic research, how we know that the, that the substance causes that. We would get maybe 10 or 15 people, healthy, healthy people, not sick people, who agree to participate in homeopathic research called approving. And under blinded conditions, they're not told what they're taking. They keep their lives stable and they take some kind of a substance that we want to understand. 
and they take, take it on a regular basis for maybe three or four months, and they keep journals about what they notice. Um, right. And at the end of that period of time, those journals are forwarded to the proving organizer, the researcher, and there's a big collation job done. We, we collate out the interesting symptoms that are consistent among those people at, at, and that, that, incorporate, that include mental, emotional, and physical features. And those end, end up in homeopathic textbooks called Materia Medica. Um, okay. So when homeopaths study, they have to get to know that Materia Medica very well, and they have to be able to analyze a, 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 a patient's symptoms through what's called rubrics so that we can identify the correct uh, remedy that's made from those, those substances. <laughs> it's really well, common, deep common sense once you get used to it. Uh, I, I liken it to the idea of getting back on the horse that threw you, a very, very simple comparison. Let's say a horse throws you, and you say, oh, my God, I'm never going to get on a horse again. That's, that's a trauma to me. I'm done with that. That's the end of it. Um, well, the expression is, it's just an ordinary idiom, get back on that horse. Get back on the horse that threw you. Otherwise, the fear of horses will be permanently entrenched in you, right? Oh, right. Okay, well, maybe you shouldn't get on the same crazy horse that threw you, but something similar, <laughs> like we're we talking about the law of similars, maybe a, a, sure. a, a gentle, ho gentle horse or a pony. Okay, now you're right. up on that, on that gentle horse, walking around, you think, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm, I'm back on a horse. I'm, this is terrible. This is awful. It's going to throw me again. You're re-engaging right. with the scene of the crime, with, with the trauma under more favorable circumstances. That's what a remedy does. And when you get off the horse, you're back to baseline or you're even better. Very nice. I'm going to take a moment. I was remiss in introducing you. I need to read your credentials so the audience knows who's talking here. Jerry is a faculty member at the Ontario College of Homeopathic Medicine and owner of Vital Force Healthcare, a Boston area homeopathic and acupuncture practice. He is the first acupuncturist to receive an academic appointment at Harvard Medical School's Department of Anesthesiology. Jerry is the author of Interpreting Chronic Illness, The Toxic Relationship Cure, and you can learn more at Vital Force Healthcare and writewellpress.com. The, the book is uh, Revealing the Astonished but Suppressed History of Homeopathic Psychiatry. Jerry examines the success of homeopathic psychiatric asylums in America. So successful psychiatric asylums in America from post-Civil War era till 1920, including how um, he focuses in particular on New York's Middletown State Homeopathic Hospital for the Insane, where Superintendent uh, Talcott oversaw a compassionate and holistic treatment regimen that Mary Thomas Kirkbride's moral treatment principles to homeopathy. I just I wanted the audience to know um, your background, and it was my remiss. I, I apologize for not doing that before I brought you on the show, but I, I need to validate your credentials so people know who's talking. So let's get back to it. So uh, this is fascinating. So so homeopathic medicine is creating a, a database of the effects of particular substances, 
and then you're using that um, database that's built by people who volunteer to take a substance over a period of time and then document the effects on the persona, and then you turn around and use that as a medicine. Now let's let's fold this into let's look at the past um, as the book talks about when. Uh, homeopathic techniques were successful in uh, insane asylum uh, treatments of patients. Tell us about um, the heyday or the, the the successful era in our history. Wow, um, yeah, that is <laughs> that's the entire book. Um, but um, well, homeopathy has been has had a real presence since the late 1700s when Samuel Hahnemann. Um, came on the scene. He was a very famous, famous physician and brilliant man, famous all throughout Europe. And uh, by the way, he's the only not foreigner to have a statue of himself in Washington D.C. You should go see the Samuel Hahnemann um, um, memorial statue. It's, it's amazing. He was hugely, um, hugely respected. And homeopathy took hold because uh, it was a fantastic me- medicine and uh, didn't cause side effects. It didn't didn't harm the clients, and we, we just get these amazing cures when we, we can prescribe accurately. After the Civil War, uh, the Civil War caused so much carnage and so much trauma in, in this country that the country pretty much went crazy. Uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't get the, uh, the bodies of their, of their, of their, of their uh, lost sons and husbands um, they were blown to bits. They, they couldn't get... Uh, they couldn't wait to hear like wonderful last words of people. They couldn't retrieve the bodies and, and hope for a resurrection. So the country was in deep grief and really went crazy. And what I'm explaining is why so many mental hospitals cropped up after the Civil War. Um, it was just amazing. And homeopathic hospitals were a large percentage, percentage of them. That story has been um, uh, disgracefully suppressed, censored. It, does not, it has been scrubbed cleanly from the website's of the medical of the of the medical um, medical schools that were home, originally homeopathic, uh, from the hospitals, the hundreds of hospitals that were originally homeopathic, just wiped out, and that's a disgrace, and that's something that uh, that that story alone needs to be told. Anyway, but these asylums that I call sane asylums, they were called ins- insane asylums, but in fact the homeopathic ones were really very wonderful places. They were utopias. They were self-sufficient. They had all kinds of wonderful activities there. They, they, uh, the, the Middletown Hospital even used baseball therapeutically, developing a fantastic team that uh, uh, people love watching. And there's so many therapeutic things about baseball. Um, but in any case, they were treated with respect, which is the regime of, the, of moral care. And to be fair, non-homeopathic hospitals did that too until they, 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 they realized that they couldn't control these clients. And like at Utica, put them in infamous devices like the Utica crib um, to, to, punish, to punish you and to break your spirit. That never happened in the homeopathic hospitals. In the homeopathic hospitals, the physicians went around giving these remedies to people while they respected them and allowed them to uh, participate in, in letter writing and carpentry and gardening and all kinds of wonderful things. They were not kicked out of, of those places in, and pushed into the community prematurely. They were given asylum and, and allowed to, uh, to, 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 be, to be cured. They also had fantastic nursing. The Middletown Hospital had a genius uh, homeopathic physician, a woman who was a nurse educator, who wrote a great book called Nursing the Insane in 1908. 
This is Clara Barris, and uh, she wrote probably the best holistic uh, nursing manual ever, ever, ever done. And anyway, people went. These nurses and the doctors went to bat with the with the with the insane with the same pop, insane population, trying through argument and persuasion and and peace and quiet and homeopathy to get them to uh, come back to reality. Um, it was not a matter of, of, of warehousing them and, and drugging them at all. They really went to bat for it. That, uh, one of the terms for that would be moral hygiene. There's so much to say about it. It's, it's quite amazing. But they, they were wonderful. They were utopias. Utop utopianism was a, a big deal at that time anyway, and, uh, and that, that infected these, these, um, these homeopathic hospitals. But the problem was uh, the, the demise of that, which has been completely distorted by history, was that they, they failed, not because homeopathy failed, not at all. It was because that uh, they, were, they were crammed full of clients. They, they, they had like five times the number of, of, of uh, people there that they should have had. And the, and the level of care broke down. And then the pharmaceutical agenda was pushed on them. And the, and the regular physicians came back. And moral care itself was destroyed. Um, and all the old abuses from the, from the 1700s, from like in places in Bedlam, uh, uh, incarcerating clients, putting them in shackles and hydrotherapy, and, and then eventually uh, lobotomies, all that terrible stuff came back. And very, in very cynical fashion, an impression has been left that homeopathy was part of that. That is absolutely not true. And um, it's one, it is my mission to, to correct that, that fallacy. Well, um... Your book is quite exceptional because it you've really been over backwards to bring references to everything that you talk about. It's it there's so there's so much content in this book and it's quite obvious you've been over backwards to to validate and and back up everything that you've referenced in this book. Um I just want to compliment you on uh, on such a in, intense and in-depth task. I think you've done a wonderful job. So, um, well, it's so easy for, I mean, all you have to do is turn on the TV and wait 10 seconds, and um, there's some commercial telling you about pricing 12, and um, it'll, it, it'll remove the the issue you have, but the side effects might include horrible, horrible things. And if that's our narrative, if that's, if that's making the airwaves and a homeopathic um, um, success and effect is not, that's, that's that blasphemy I'm talking about. It's like we're getting pushed into this single, this single narrative about our healthcare, like Western medicine in, in the, pharmaceutical arena is some kind of a godsend and it's just I don't see it I mean um, what I really like about the homeopathic method is um, you're using a very subtle amount to trigger the body and then the body does the reaction and restoration to uh, to help is that correct yes yeah um, as you know, it's like psychopharm medicine uh, just suppresses your symptoms and replaces some of them with, with other symptoms, sometimes, you know, sometimes worse. But the thing about it is those medicines enjoy patents and they make money 
and the, the business of America is America, and medicine is based on the profit motive. We lost an opportunity uh, in the demise of the, home, of, of, uh, the homeopathic um, school. It never went away, by the way. It's, it's still here, but uh, a lot more undercover than it used to be. Um, homeopathic remedies don't belong to anybody any more than acupuncture points belong to anybody. And this is right. fantastic medicine. Um, it just, it's just about getting people well and from the inside out and, and not making money. But uh, as you know, um, the profit motive, the, you know, the greed of that, it's, it's, it's been fantastic, really very, very good for the economy. A lot, so many people are employed in the production of drugs and testing of drugs and marketing of drugs. And I mean, it, it has a it's a tremendous economic engine that homeopathy and acupuncture, uh, you know, simply don't. But for my money, <laughs> you really can't improve on the, the knowledge of a 5,000-year-old Chinese medicine, which includes acupuncture, or and uh, almost equally long, well, not quite as long, history of homeopathy, which is also running, runs according to a law of nature, like using like to cure like. Um, there's no comparison. And, uh, yeah, uh, the denial of homeopathy as being powerful, being a law of nature. It's one of the great denials of our, of our century, up, up there with climate change denial, I'm, I'm ashamed to say. Well, the, um, the, the way this affects the subconscious, I mean, if I, I like the analogy that you use, that if you get on the horse and the horse bucks you off and you, you take on a fear you, you, your persona, your psyche takes on a fear or a memory of the experience that creates a, a posturing in your psyche, and that is uh, the beginning of a perhaps a dis-ease, and then to come along and, and heal that imprint on your psyche with a, 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 a like minded experience experience and then the subconscious or as you say the vital force heals its own stigma that i just find that fascinating you know less um if you would allow me i would like at the towards the end of my Please. book i have a case i have a few cases in the book from my own own caseload and it, it just makes so many points um that I, I I'd like to read it. I I don't I don't think the audience will be bored if I do this, but it, Go it's, for it. it's, a, it's a very good example of a, of a number of things we're talking about. Is that okay? You betcha. Okay, this is called the case of the naked schoolgirl. Um, so on a daily basis, the mother of my patient, who is a, a nine-year-old girl, let's call her Miranda. So the mother receives a frantic call from the from the school during transition from one activity to another the child has once again removed every stitch of her clothes. In her naked state, it's forbidden to touch her, and classroom activity has screeched to a halt. Neither teacher nor staff member can persuade her to dress. If this continues, Miranda will have to be removed from this and placed in an inappropriate, possibly psychiatric setting. A stressful implication hangs in the air that the child has been subjected to sexual abuse, possibly within the family. The mother is beside herself. The child's behavior was abnormal. Was she abused? Must we assume that Miranda has a psychiatric disorder? Does she require medic medication? According to the Encyclopedia of, Me of Mental Disorders, exhibitionism is a, me is a mental disorder 
characterized by a compulsion to display one's genitals uh, to an unsuspecting stranger. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders classifies exhibitionism under the head heading of uh, paraphilias, which is a subcategory of, of sexual and gender identity disorders. Um, I'll skip what that part is. Um, okay, so the product, going back to her, the product of a family passionately committed to a development, Miranda is a remarkably intelligent child who has Down syndrome. And that's a genetic disorder, as we know, caused by abnormal cell division. She's able to speak three languages, loves gymnastics, singing, dancing, swimming, playing the piano, cooking, baking, going to the beach, reading, eating cupcakes, ice cream, hugging, and anything yellow. Miranda had been referred to me a year earlier due to an unresponsive immune system. She had been chronically ill, unable to remain healthy for more than a few days at a time. She was constantly on antibiotics. Miranda never slept through the night. A finding of, ele of elevated levels of ferritin and vitamin B12 were associated with, were associated with her poor, poor sleep. She underwent uh, evaluation by a neurologist at a major Boston teaching hospital for PANDAS, uh, PANS, which is Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Streptococcus, with a mouthful, with tests for Cunningham panel, uh, metabolic tests, and all measurement levels of anti antibodies were found high, including dopamine 1 receptor, dopamine uh, 2L receptor, uh, high GAN glyoside um, GM1, and tubulin. Anti anti autoimmune antibodies binding to these targets were hypothesized as interfering with antigen function. Sorry that got so technical. Okay. No worries. So over the, over the course of three months, where I had used just a handful of remedies, Miranda's physical health continuously improved. In fact, she ceased becoming ill. The aim of continued treatment then veered into helping her manage everyday frustrations and sustain mental focus. A consult at the time of the phone, phone calls brought to light that apart from disrobing in, in, the, the disrobing in school problem, Miranda's impulse control, especially with regard to her clamoring for sweets, had greatly improved. Now, even within homeopathy, interpreting Miranda's disrobing uh, provided a challenge. The chief remedy within rubrics, within rubrics such as desires to be naked or exhibitionism, that usually brings up this remedy called hyoscyamus. But I knew that nothing about that remedy fit her. If that remedy were prescribed, it would not act. And the remedy I wound up choosing did not surface among any of the 399 entries that populated my computer materia medica when I put in nakedness. It was just simply not there. So this required a little bit of out-of-the-box thinking, even for a homeopath. So key for me was the consult's revelation that Miranda loved to collect. Now we're getting into the kind of things that uh, are so specific, the kind of specific, unique features about someone um, that homeopaths love. Also in response to her, her prior remedy, which was something called lycopodium, the theme in that remedy was insecurity. And you wouldn't be surprised to think that somebody who has a, a problem like, uh, or a state like um, Down syndrome might, for all kinds of reasons, become insecure. In any case, on that remedy, her psyche, her vital force, underwent what I call a pendulum swing. As opposed to being generally uncertain, she had shifted into a state characterized by certitude. This was evident from her suddenly becoming oppositional and defiant to the point of driving uh, her mother to distraction. Now, the collector's supposition 
is that alike items should be conserved, and so Miranda's proclivity for collecting supported my assessment. She had other symptoms, too. These included throat clearing and being gassy. Um, I had no doubt that Miranda needed this remedy that I finally came up with called calicarbonicum, which is made from potassium carbonate. Now, people needing, now we're going to get into what, what the Materia Medica about calicarbonicum is all about. People needing this remedy have a black and white mindset. They're judgmental. They're intolerant of change and not surprisingly traditionalists. What stresses them out is gray areas, transitional situations. Um, she's the kind of person who thinks, here's the polarity in, in, at the core of, this, of, the, of the Cali Carbonicum state. My need for certitude and control is so great that upon attaining surety and control, matters about which I cannot be sure are uncontrollably uncertain. So that's the polarity of the state. Well, still, I struggled with how disrobing fit into the Kelly Carbonicum picture. As I said, it doesn't look, nakedness, disrobing does not come up anywhere in the Materia Medica. But then I suddenly realized that there was no contradiction. In Miranda's individual case, she disrobed in opposition to what to her was an intolerable transition. Her nakedness made several Kelly Carbonicum points. And these are this. This is what they are. I know who I am and you do not. Nothing has, since, has changed since I was born. In my birthday suit, this is who I am and always have been. My current activity ought not to change. So brilliantly, her nakedness stymied anyone touching or transitioning her. It was amazing. Well, so I was convinced that this was not a cry for help, that she was not abused. Um, her exhibitionism actually served a conservative purpose. And I predicted that the remedy would eliminate the behavior. And I'm pleased to say that within two days of taking the remedy, that behavior completely stopped, and she completely stopped taking off her clothes. So that's a case I, I, I brought that illustrates how a remedy can treat a problem which has, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> physical characteristics, uh, psychological characteristics, and absolutely resists categorization uh, on many, many levels. Um, can, you, can you imagine the good that did? in comparison to what could have happened to that girl, if she was taken away from her family, if she was medicated once again, if she was given a psychiatric diagnosis, if she was taken out of school, that simple intervention um, that followed normal homeopathic thinking on my part, um, that was a very, very good outcome. Indeed. I mean, to, to turn around and try to um, sedate that with... Uh, a, what a lifetime of medication and and I mean what's better than nature healing itself? I mean you're, you're basically providing these extremely subtle triggers for the subconscious to write itself, and it's not overpowering, and there's not a list of side effects, and it's um, this has been really fascinating. So. Imagine a listener that, where they themselves or perhaps a family member has has um, ailments that have been treated with um, strong medicines. How do you go about um, engaging the homeopathic community? If if is there a, a national uh, um, directory so you can find local people? Yeah, um, we we are, we're exist, we exist now. As opposed to acupuncture, it's not licensed 
in every state, and some states actually have it. Some some states, I believe, you you, you can you, you have to be a physician to practice it. It's a very messy situation, but we have credentialing. The gold standard for credentialing a homeopath comes from an organization called the CAC, the Council for Homeopathic uh, Certification. And uh, to get that certification, you've got to go to go to a school. You've got to present a number of cases. Um, you have to pass an exam. That's the gold standard. There's a silver standard too, which uh, is also very high um, through the North American Society of, Home of Homeopaths. Um, but in any case, yeah, there are, there are, there are registries. If you, uh, I, I would suggest people go to the CAC website to find the homeopath. Um, that we, we have them in every state. But the funny thing about homeopathy is it tends to be, it's fragmented in this country such that chiropractors like, like the, you know, there are chiropractor homeopaths, there are naturopath homeopaths, there are um, <clears throat> veterinary homeopaths, and there's still an association of, of, of physicians who are homeopaths, the AIH. Um, it's just a, a kind of a frag fragmented, um, fragmented landscape. But all of us who practice uh, the classical method uh, use these materia medicas, uh, which have the, all the information about the remedies, uh, and the other book, which is uh, the, the repertory, which breaks all, every symptom a human being can have, or an animal, into these rubrics that represent mental, emotional, physical features. I refer to them in that case there. As I say, in the mind section of a, uh, of a repertory, if you were trying to find a remedy for Miranda, you would undoubtedly look up uh, disrobing or nakedness, you know, and this remedy, hyoscyamus, would constantly come up, and a few other ones. But I guarantee using that remedy for her would simply not have worked. So there's a subtlety to, to homeopathy, and people become better at, uh, at being subtle practitioners with experience. So, you know, we're not a huge part of the population in this country, but uh, other parts of the world, if, if you're lucky to leave uh, the shores of, of America, if you went to Switzerland, you would find it's absolutely embedded in the uh, uh, health care system. In, London, in, in England, even though it's been under attack quite ferociously over the past few years, still part of the National Health Service, um, it's, uh, I, have, I have the statistics someplace, but there are three, at least 300 million people rely on it. In India especially, there are hundreds of homeopathic medical schools, hundreds. And um, yeah, physicians come out of there practicing exclusively homeopathy. Um, once, you, once you get away from the, the propaganda in this country, medicine can look quite different. As in the example that you gave, uh, Les, um, Traditional means are, are, are very powerful and they're constantly being rediscovered and putting our, our so-called high technology medicine to shame. As a matter of fact, if you read the books by uh, Robert Whitaker, who was an inspiration for my book, um, psychi modern psychiatry has given America the, a terrible mental health record, much worse than developing countries um, where they're not exposed to these things. It's really, uh, really quite a shame. Well, so assume I'm a mental health uh, uh, practitioner, um, um, professional, and I'm I'm increasingly less and less impressed with the um, the side effects of, of perhaps some of the medications on the market, and and I've listened to this episode, and I uh, I like the idea of nature, healing nature, how could somebody who's been practicing uh, psychiatry, um, how, how much 
effort would it take to be certified in a homeopathic um, skill set? Uh, it would just take a will to learn it, but uh, I think you would probably be burning bridges with uh, most of your colleagues. A few of my, my, uh, my friends, my colleagues are, are psychiatrists. Eric Leskowitz, who wrote its amazing forward to my book, is a homeopathic psychiatrist. Um, he completely gets it. He totally gets it. Um, I have other, I know, I have other colleagues who have um, tried to travel a middle road, rely on their on their on their conventional medicines if they're running into a difficult case, but uh, also but trying to, to to be homeopaths. It is very very difficult to do both things at once. Basically, you have to jump in, into the into the river with both feet and learn how to swim there. Pretty much anybody who really gets the homeopathic message cannot cannot serve two masters. It's it's almost impossible. <clears throat> and I think every time, and there's been many, many attempts to uh, appropriate homeopathy, to tame it, to uh, make it, a, a, you know, co- you know, make some kind of a marriage between the two, the two forms of medicine. They don't go well for homeopathy. They never do. Diluting it, no pun intended, um, is is just not a good idea. The, the uh, once you get into it, and you realize that there's just no compromise with it. You really have to have a lot of faith faith in in, uh, in in that way of working, and then you will wind up becoming primarily a homeopath. The early homeopaths, by the way, uh, ones I write about in my book, and even before that, they weren't they, they didn't just they weren't homeopaths from from the from high school. They, they were physicians who converted, and that's been that's long been the story. So because so what you're talking about happens all the time. Doctors do get disgusted with what happens. They do disgusted, get, get disgusted with a profit motive. And many of them do drop out. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a trope. <laughs> it's happened many, many times. Many homeopaths were originally, were originally um, physicians. Yeah, th- there's real uh, blasphemy, and that's why I started this episode off with that term, with the idea of one modality um, strong arming its way as a singular narrative for the whole. In other words, uh, um, for Western medicine to um, become our only choice is blasphemy to the nature of nature. Nature has a hundred million ways to do anything. I mean, we could have, um, well, we've had many shows over the the years of people using non-traditional methods as a way to restore health either within their persona or within their practice so i'm i'm delighted that again you've written a a really wonderful book it's so um comprehensive and it's backed up by so many references it took you quite a while to write this didn't it uh, I, I, uh, I, I like to joke that that's how I spent my COVID vacation. Um, I just worked like a madman, and my, my, my poor wife was uh, <laughs> ignored for quite a bit of this time, as she will tell you. I had a full-time practice while I, while I did it, um, but I had fantastic resources. I got hold of all these old textbooks, thanks to the University of Michigan's uh, digitalization process. I had a lot. I, a lot just sort of came my way. Um, I also want to leave the audience with... Uh, my recounting of a 150-year-old journalistic coup um, in regard to Mary Todd Lincoln that, that I d- did not know I was going to stumble on. 
And this is also um, emblematic of how uh, powerful censorship could go. I mean, I'm not trying to teach homeopathy so much in this book. I mean, although I'm very glad that happens, as to show the, the bad consequences, the consequences that come from, from censorship, from, from pretending something that happened didn't happen and distorting history. Um, now, there's been hundreds and hundreds of books written about Mary Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's widow, who went completely out of her mind. Uh, she had, she had, had a serious head injury. She was trolled by uh, uh, terrible writers at the time who said that, she, that Lincoln never loved her, that he loved someone else originally, and much more than her. And, of course, the loss of two sons and then becoming a widow. She was also a pariah in, in Washington, D.C., because she was from the South, and her family had slaves. She was hated, and she had every justification for losing her mind. She surely did. But the two narratives that exist about that, they're both completely implausible. I mean, this enormous state of the, you know, enormous trial took place. Fourteen doctors testified that she had lost her mind. Her son brought, brought, brought the case. He, he was trying to, to, to save her um, and get her some help. She was certifiably nuts. She was hallucinating. She was uh, doing all kinds of nutty things. And anyway, um, the physician, they, they found her incurably insane, and she was, uh, she was uh, told she had to go to a mental hospital. Now, the physicians there include, and many of them were homeopaths at the trial, they said, go see this guy Richard Patterson in Bellevue. He's got a, he's got a, a, a Bellevue, Illinois. He's got a, a, he's got a wonderful little asylum there, and he's a master at treating the mentally ill. He can do this. Um, okay, so she went there and was treated by Richard Patterson. And in three months, over the course of four months, she's behaving normally. She's writing letters. She's sitting chatting with uh, Patterson's wife and child. Um, she's absolutely normal. And then she gets hold of these two lawyers who get her out. Um, and then a few months later, she's declared perfectly sane. So there's the other narrative. Well, she was never crazy in the first place. She's either completely nuts and she got better completely on her own or um, well, she was never crazy in the first place. 150 years have gone by, and those are the two completely incompatible narratives. And I found in researching this, oh, my God, there's absolutely incontrovertible evidence. She was treated by homeopathy, and that's what happened. That story has not been told. And even though the, the Lincoln saga has been picked over very thoroughly, I'm hoping that uh, that chapter on Mary Todd Lincoln is the Trojan horse for homeopathy, as far as breaking, you know, breaking, you know, bringing some truth to the history of medicine in this country, of me around mental health. Um, as I say, I'm not, I'm even, I'm a little bit less interested in teaching homeopathy than correcting this problem of of, of censorship. I, I think I'm, I live in America. This shouldn't be like the Soviet Union, where we we pretend because we don't like a particular history or or uh, prefer things were a little different uh, that we just uh, er eradicate it. That's really wrong. But um, yeah, I do. In my chapter, I do talk about how she was probably treated. Uh, Patterson uh, was very careful about not keeping records. It was known that he used what we call popular medicine of that time, which could only have been homeopathy. And um, there's no way that she could have gotten that way with just with moral care treatment, just hand-holding and being treated respectfully. Everybody knew he had a secret weapon, and that secret weapon was homeopathy. And there are many other instances of that at other hospitals, which were not homeopathic necessarily in name, but had famous homeopaths on staff who, uh, who did these, um, you know, brought about miraculous effects. Nice. Well, I really like that you're bringing attention to this. I mean, humanity 
by its very nature, uh, I think, deserves choices. The, the fewer choices we have, the less power we have in our, in our uh, own personal narrative. And when our choices collapse, it affects our future. And so to have a vibrant future is to have a vibrant number of choices. And, and so I, I love bringing attention to these successful and powerful healing modalities that have fallen by the wayside um, so we can, we can bring back a, a collage of modalities. I mean, there's um, how many um, different modalities are there all over the world? And every culture has, has their, their lineage of medicine and and why don't we put it all on the table and and what might not work for one will work for another and it, it it it's blasphemy to to collapse things into a narrower and narrower narrative and and so <laughs> i'm i'm rambling but um it's i'm i'm so it's delighted complicated to here because we have the insurance you know people people think that nothing's legitimate unless it's covered by insurance um, sure. Boy, is that a mistake? Um, so this 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 intertwining of the of the the healthcare uh, the economic model the the reimbursement model with care um, so much good stuff is simply not covered and that unfortunately has the effect of making people think it's it's not valid it's a, it's a it's a it's a, <laughs> it's a big foolishness it's and it's unfortunate but th- that will take a long time to correct. Well, now an hour has gone by pretty fast now. Um, share with your audience your book, your other books, any resources and modalities that you do. In other words, if you have a practice and you see people, tell people how they can connect with you. And if you could share that with the audience now. Okay, uh, I'm pretty big. I'm pretty. I'm pretty busy now. It happened for some time, so I'm not necessarily looking for. Uh, new clients, but my, my, but I, I still, do still accept folks and maybe a few weeks before I get to you. Um, I'm, I am frankly more interested in, in teaching on a larger scale, working less and less with one-to-one and more and more with large audiences like with yours less. Um, so I'd like people to be acquainted with my books, which are, um, they're entertaining and they're informative and uh, people might get uh, um, get some benefit from reading from them. The first book I wrote was called Interpreting Chronic Illness, and that offers a seamless integration of homeopathy, traditional Chinese medicine, and biomedical understandings of chronic illness. Um, that was a breakthrough book for me, and uh, there's a lot of um, very good material in there. The uh, second book I wrote, which is a very accessible book called uh, the, to- the Toxic Relationship Cure, uh, Remedying um, toxic damage from a, a boss, a lover, a parent, a friend, also the, uh, the, um, from God. Some people have bad relationships with, with spiritual sources. That book is a compilation of fables drawn from my, um, my, my experience. So they're, they're stories which involve uh, the use of remedies to treat these kinds of, these kinds of traumas. A lot of, almost everybody can relate to having have some kind of a, a very traumatic toxic relationship with someone. Um, a more technical book I wrote after that is called Autism Reversal Toolbox, and that was published by Emrys in, in, in uh, Holland. 
And uh, that's a compilation of strategies that I've learned and case histories in treating um, in autism and autism spectrum ailments. The fourth book <laughs> is a lot of fun. Uh, it's called, it's got a crazy title, and it's written under a pseudonym called Hamisher Homeopathy, the Schmendrick's Re uh, Guide to Remedying Yiddish Kvetches. And um, <laughs> it's a serious book in disguise uh, because Yiddish, and I, I'm not even a native Yiddish speaker, but Yiddish is full of very funny expressions which make great homeopathic rubrics. And so it's a, it's a fun way of learning about homeopathy using Jewish jokes and anecdotes and cartoons. So uh, people can look at that. Um, Sane Asylums, the success of homeopathy before society, uh, psychiatry lost its mind, is, uh, you know, brought up by um, Inner Traditions. It's, it's available through Simon, it's distributed through Simon & Schuster. If you buy it at the Amazon website, you can write a review of it. And uh, the point, the idea here is really to, to break through into the mainstream. This is a, is a story that should not have been suppressed. As, as you say, Les, you know, if, 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 if this story were told, we would have more choices. The loss of the choices around, the, around uh, uh, having homeopathy available, especially in the mental health arena, that's really a sad thing for Americans. And it's a lost opportunity. So I want people to uh, become familiar with that book, demand that it be in the libraries, talk about it, get some discussion going um, so that we can make some inroads and uh, improve mental health in this country and uh, you know, not, not just be driven by profit, profit mode of medicine. Well, very nice. Well, Jerry, I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. I have thoroughly enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much, Les. Um, you're a wonderful interviewer, and I very much appreciate this opportunity. Uh, keep up the good work. It's, it's so important. We've been talking with Jerry Cantor, and the topic tonight is the subtitle of his latest book, The Era of Brilliant Homeopathic Mental Hospitals. The name of the book is Sane Asylums. I love uh, Jerry's passion for understanding something and, and um, the drive to investigate and learn um, the power behind it and then and then to showcase it. Again, he's written a wonderful book. There's so much material in this book. I think uh, he's really done a service. Um, you know, if we want more freedom in the future, we want more choices in the future. We don't want to, to collapse our choices into smaller and smaller narratives. That doesn't serve anybody. It's... It, Fewer choices, fewer expressions, uh, that's just, it's blasphemy <laughs> to, to the nature of nature. Nature always expresses itself in, in ever-evolving ways. It's an expansion of choices, an expansion of expression, an expansion of, of the, the creative dynamic of consciousness itself. Uh, it, it doesn't serve us to lose sight of that. Nature always enjoys a broader brush, a, a broader expression of itself. So we don't want to collapse into narrower and narrower narratives that doesn't serve us over time. Hey, you know, um, if you've read my books, uh, Jerry reminded me, um, 
uh, Citizen King, the New Age of Power, and Forgiven Sinner God slash Savior, I would appreciate it if you go to Amazon and leave a review of my books. Um, And I need to write some more books, damn it. (laughs) I've been doing this show for so long. I've... uh, I really, really enjoy such uh, uh, interviewing such a diverse group of guests. Uh, Jerry is a classic example of a, a really sharp and intelligent individual who's given his attention and intention to a topic and really brought forth a, a very condensed, powerful um, understanding of of yet another way we can serve ourselves. So I want to thank Jerry for being our show to, on our show tonight. I want to thank you, the listener, way to show up for yourself. Humanity, we can, it's impossible for us to exhaust our potential. It is. It is. We, we could expand our, our persona every single day for the rest of time, and because we are nature expressing itself, Nature's always up for yet another chapter. I want to thank you again for joining us tonight. What a pleasure. Until next time, I'm your host, Les Jensen. Thanks for listening. This has been a New Human Living Radio broadcast. To bring your soul's inspiration into effect and live your life wide open. Check out our host, Les Jensen's book, Citizen King, The New Age of Power at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.